Hello, my name is Declan Deneen, welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest today is Tim Constant. Uh, Tim makes games under the guise of Panic Barn, and is probably best known for uh, Tiki Taka Soccer, which is probably one of the best, if not the best, um, football games for mobile phones. Mobile phones. I'm not an old man for iOS, Android, Windows phone even, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and, and he was a delight. I mean, it's, it's, it's so nice. I speak to a lot of devs. Um, it's so nice to speak to somebody who took a real gamble to follow their dreams. And, and it, it paid off, you know, it, or it, it continues to pay off. And I'm sure it's quite... A stressful thing but I love hearing a story of someone just saying you know I think I might try and do this on my own and then succeeding you know not not necessarily in you know a multi-millionaire or anything not taking over the world but just making good things and getting by and enjoying their life it's it's wonderful and he was a delight to talk to I think you'll really enjoy it it's a, it's a really good episode I finally completed Thumper oh man that was I don't think I've ever been so angry at a game that's not true i've definitely been angry at a game but it's been some time uh since i've been so frustrated but in in, in just the best possible way you know that that kind of slightly sadomasochistic way where i know it's gonna hurt but i know how good it's gonna feel once it's finished so that's that's a really dark sentence uh, i didn't mean to get so uh so perverted or maybe i did um Thanks, as always, for listening to the show. Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can email. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com. And it's at Checkpoint Show on Twitter. And it's forward slash checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Uh, I'm still looking to hear from, from devs, like new, new starts, devs that are just making their start in the industry, devs that are just uh, making their first game or just about to release their first game. I'd love to hear from you. If that's you, uh, please do get in touch. I'm still working on the episode, All About Games Are For Everyone. Uh, I've now got pretty much 90% of all the interviews done, and I've edited some of the, the live footage from the, the evening. Um, so hopefully that'll be next week. Uh, I mean, ideally, perhaps not, but that that's my, my goal, is to make it for next week, so you can uh, look forward to that. If you enjoy the show, please do share it around. You know, Tweet about it, Facebook it, tell your friends, etc. Uh, don't, definitely don't rate and review it on iTunes. It's worthless. Don't do that. Um, and if you really like the show, uh, we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. Um, and very much appreciate everyone's already pledged. And uh, if you have the money and enjoy the show and you'd like to support it, that would be wonderful and very much appreciated. Okay, I'll be back next week with a new episode. Uh, hopefully the games are for everyone. If not, it'll be a new wonderful guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. So okay, so Tim, let's let's do a, a formal introduction for the sake of the show. So, 
Tim, welcome to Checkpoint. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Tim Constant, and I'm an independent developer, games developer based in sunny Somerset at the moment. Tim Constant is such a brilliant name. That sounds like such a science fiction name. I, I wasn't sure if that was actually your real name. No, it's, it's not like a stage indie developer name. It's, <laughs> that is my real name. <laughs> But that, I mean, that is classic. Like you can imagine, like Mister Constant being the the main character in some '60s sci-fi novel. Yeah, or kind of a character from Cluedo, Mister Constant in the library. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's really good. I, I like. I like it a lot. Um, so, so Tim, uh, you made um, Tiki Taka Soccer. That, that's probably what you're you're best known for. Uh, yeah, in, in video uh, yeah. games. Yeah. So the Tiki Taka Soccer football series, which is a touchscreen football game on um android ios and now windows um done a couple of couple of games now we just recently a tie-in for the euro 2016 tournament but the original tiki taka soccer was more classical football leagues club football um and the classic kind of building a team from the bottom and seeing how far you can go and it's really good like really hard um but it's really good like i do I, i'm not a huge fan of of sports games generally actually no i am i i was rather but the it's the same with racing games as well the more realistic they become the the less i enjoy them so so it's things like tiki taka soccer and i really loved the the street games like nba streets and stuff the yeah and nba jam, NBA the jam classic. yeah um, They're always trying to find something which is equivalent to that and struggling there, to there was an nba jam eight on the 360 i think a kind of remake um and it just it wasn't as good and i don't know why uh, it just didn't have the same sort of feel to it, um, and that kind of that actually introduced me to, to basketball. Essentially, NBA Jam. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And my my <laughs> knowledge of basketball is still based on the roster yeah, that in that game, basically. Yeah, yeah, and being on fire, and you know the Chicago Bulls. Obviously, they're still the best team. Chicago Bulls. I'm sure they're still great. I'm sure. So they I don't are. know. I don't know any other basketball teams, but yeah, that was a classic. My and, favorite was NBA street three because you could unlock the beastie boys and i love that <laughs> that was one, yeah. one of the teams at the end you could play as the beastie boys oh the best and madden as well i remember madden on the mega drive that that kind of um also introduced me to american football in a way which i never thought and never since actually have gotten into i mean i still know the rules of american football from madden that's weird because that was one of the ones that i did try and it was just too <laughs> incomprehensible because I had yeah. just zero knowledge of American football beyond those little key rings you used to get with like the the jerseys, the little card key rings. Then if you ever remember them, you get them in like packs of bubblegum. They were oh, a big yeah, thing yeah. in school for about a month. Um, and and also when you were choosing a play in Madden, they just had the craziest names like Shotgun and and Hail Mary, and it just none of it made sense. So for someone in England choosing what to do on the next move, it was just complete randomness, but somehow still fun selecting one of these things and just trying to make it work. Yeah. I mean, I've come to really enjoy American football now, but at the time it's just not, I can't, I just couldn't comprehend it at all. Yeah. Um, so, well, let, let's go back then, Tim. So what, um, if you can remember, what was your, your very first experience of a video game? Yeah, this is quite difficult because I've got a terrible memory, but I think, like a lot of your uh, interviewees, it was the BBC. Because I was a, I'm that age, I'm kind of, I'm at the age when the BBC was being introduced to schools. And it, and, it would and, have been in school? 
Well, I think my parents, I was amazed, amazed my parents got one as well. Uh, but I can't remember what came first, whether it was the school or my parents. I think it must have been the school. And maybe they, um, yeah, so, I mean, they obviously didn't get it for games, even though the games we played in school when we were allowed to were, you know, the classic educational titles like Granny's Garden and strange little text adventures like that. But we were always getting in early and playing that there was a, a demo disc, not disc, tape, demo tape, which had a number of games on. And I remember playing bat and ball. Everyone would take a turn playing bat and ball. And there were some really odd, strange games. I wouldn't even class them as games. Like, I think there was a game called Kingdom where you had to you had to kind of decide where you were going to set up camp Okay. And on a top-down screen. And then once you've decided, the game would just play out and your camp would either survive or not. There were all sorts of strange little... little like uh, a kind of really uh, basic civilization. That's yeah. Like. Yeah. But... And then I don't know when my parents decided to get a BBC or why. I presume they thought educational. But, you know, I'm trying to think if I did anything educational on the BBC at all. <laughs> I'd be, I think you'd then, be hard-pressed to find anyone doing anything <laughs> educational at that age. Yeah, but it was a kind of... I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but it just wasn't It wasn't a great gaming machine. There was some those games on it, but it was always kind of the Spectrum and the Commodore 64, which which dominated the scene and the BBC was kind of left with the dregs and kind of, um, and where were you with, at this point? Like whereabouts in the country are you? So this is in Somerset. So okay. I grew up in Somerset. So this is my local primary school, but at home I was playing games like there was like a boulder dash clone called Repton. And then there was a, um, everything was a clone really on the BBC. And then there was, there was occasionally, an original title on the BBC by Acorn Soft, I think that's who released most of the games on the BBC. And there was one called Strikers Run, I remember, which was like a run and gun. And it was it was reviewed in CMVG, which was um, which was unheard of. I mean, I used to scan CMVG for BBC reviews every month, and there never was any. And if there, if it was, it was kind of packed in with all the other uh, re- a review of another game on the Commodore sixty. It was a kind of a version of the Commodore sixty four version yeah, yeah, or the yeah. Spectrum. So it's just a, a by mention of the BBC, but Strikers one was reviewed, and I, I managed to I get it, and I just put the tape in, and it just didn't load. And oh, I just, no. I just, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I, I, you know, and I, you know, you go to your parents, you're like, oh, it's broken, it's broken, and so they took it to a friend's house. And of course, it was loading; it just took so long to load. And so, at a friend's house, they tried it and just left it for like 50 minutes, and then finally it would load. So there's nothing wrong with it at all. But there was no, you know. There was no guidance to how long this game was going to take to load. But, and was yeah. it worth the wait? At the time, it was. <laughs> at the time, You've it answered was the incredible. question already. There. Yeah, Strikers Run. It was. It was just. It was really bad run and gun game. But you were for the BBC. You were really picking up any dregs you could to play. Um, Repton. I remember Repton, which I mentioned. That did eventually Repton Three. So they kept doing them. You know, <laughs> someone was buying them. Repton Three had a construction kit. And I remember uh, piecing together uh, Boulder Dash style levels and Repton 3, and it had a little editor which you could edit sprites. So that was quite. Um, and what sort of things did you do? Anything particularly um, fun or horrific? Yeah, all sorts of horrific stuff. <laughs> and just complete disappointment that even making a basic sprite, you couldn't make it look anywhere nearly as good as what they had in the game itself. And But then that all changed, of course, when Elite came out. And that was the one. Um, game on the BBC which 
came out first from the BBC. I presume because Brabin and Co. I, don't, I pre- presume they chose the BBC because it was an educate. It was in there. I don't know when they were creating games, but I presume it was the machine which was in there in the university or whatever which they were yeah. using. But that came out, and it was just. I mean, obviously, No Man's Sky is the obvious comparison these days, but Elite came out, and you had this a galaxy to explore in 3D, wireframe 3D, and it was just it was absolutely mind blowing, and that was definitely. At the early stage, that was the formative game at the time. It was it was incredible, and and I didn't. Of course, there was no internet, there was no community to talk about elites. Yeah, and I and I couldn't even work out you could save the game. So, so you I just leave it running all the time. Well, yeah, and then if I and then I wouldn't be able to save, so I'd just start again, and so I'd literally be just doing the same kind of trip to the closest planets again and again and again until someone actually you know, told me, oh, you can save. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. I can carry on. I can actually carry on from the planet I last left off. But was there so, not yeah. like a, a community of like friends and stuff around that you, you play games with that, that well, would say, that oh, you was, can save this? Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think around that time. I was, you know, the BBC was, it was quite, you know, exclusive. It was quite posh to have one. And so it wasn't a common, not everyone was sat at home playing on their BBC. So yeah. I was quite lucky in that regard. And no one I knew had Elite, absolutely not. The only reference point I had was in magazines, seeing it reviewed. In mag- well, I don't even know if it was reviewed. It must have been reviewed in CMBG. So no, there was no one except the manual uh, to look at and no one to tell me what to do. Um, when I said I lived in Somerset, I lived in a really remote village in Somerset in the middle of nowhere. And um, yeah, there was no, no community of any kind, which is why it took me so long to to figure out I could save the game and continue. <laughs> uh, which must have been a total yeah. game changer, like quite literally. Yeah, and it was so difficult. And that's one thing No Man's Sky, I mean, I actually, no, I do really like No Man's Sky, but obviously when you dock in No Man's Sky, it's all automatic. Now, you just fly into the space station. But in Elite, it was, it was very, very difficult to even get into the PlayStation without crashing. And that danger is actually one element which has gone from No Man's Sky, which I've realised, you know, it has good good sides and bad sides. But the fear of just docking in a space station on the BBC Elite was just you know, mind blowing. When you had a, a cargo which you'd spent four hours collecting, and, and you could just save. crash, and I can save. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'll start again. Proper high stakes. <laughs> yeah, and that's missing from No Man's Sky. There is no stakes, yeah. really. But I guess, you know. Well, you probably get onto that, but it's completely different these days, isn't it? I think. I think, regardless of what decisions they they made with that, there would have been people angry about it. Like, yeah, oh, it's too hard. It's too easy. There's no goals. There's not enough goals, etc. And I did. I, bat, I actually, when the new elite came out, it was obviously on Kickstarter. Elite yeah. Dangerous, and I, and I backed it. I, you know, I paid a hundred pounds. I was so happy. This is my. And I just can't. I can't face playing it. It's really weird. Why because not? I know. Well, I played the tutorials. So I downloaded it, played the tutorials, and I just, I don't know, I just can't face starting up and doing it because it's just going to suck me in and just be, I don't know, it's just reached a whole level of complexity. I love reading about it and watching YouTube videos about it, but I just, it's just the thought of getting into it is just quite scary to me. I don't know why. I get that with uh, Eve as well. Like, Eve is it's one of the most fun games to kind of read about, and there's such such amazing stories, but... God, I'd never be able to get into that. It's just this 
the the bar to entry is so high and it requires far too much commitment i think yeah and the, that's even higher bar to entry than the new elite i think i think they made elite dangerous a lot easier for new new players so i think i will go into it but i don't know it's just a scary thought of getting sucked into that so it, that that you, it was kind of like uh I'm imagining there you're like the, the the only gamer in the village, so to speak. So <laughs> yeah, you yeah, wouldn't have I mean, a, a big community. But but were you kind of in though? Was that like that was your thing? You you were into games. I was massive into games, and I was uh, basically uh, looking back now. I was essentially trying to press gang everyone I knew into games, into playing games. When I went round to their houses, and they had a computer. I remember a guy called Ben had a Spectrum, and then two two of my friends who I'm still very good friends with. They had a uh, Commodore 64. My cousin had a PC a bit later on. and so. I, but I was always trying to dominate the time when I went around the houses to use these devices. Like the spec, I remember Ben's uh, Spectrum. Um, yeah, just trying to, what should we do? Oh, well, we could check out the Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just always trying to press people into, you know, the playing on these games. And of course, the Spectrum was... Yeah, the Spectrum was great because it was just so well supported compared to the BBC. Yeah, there's so much more, so many more games. Like, did you yeah, ever get any of the other computers? No, no. So, the Spectrum. I mean, I was always I played on all of them. So the Spectrum was great. And then seeing the Commodore 64 at my other friend's house, that took it to a new level. And it's weird with hindsight. And there's absolutely no doubt that the Commodore was a better computer than the Spectrum. Looking back with hindsight. Yeah, but. You know, the Spectrum was probably a lot cheaper and was just so so ingrained into British computing. And so many more games, like... Yeah. Because I, was, I, was, I don't know if you listened to... I did an episode recently with uh, uh, Tony Coles, he's a friend of mine, he's a writer, and he talked about, like, he, he bought a, a Japanese Mega Drive, he got it on import, and he played yeah. the hell out of it, and then sold the whole thing yeah, and bought read, a Spectrum with just, like, loads of old games, because it was just... You know, with the Mega Drive, you can get maybe two games a year max, whereas a Mega uh, Spectrum here here's everything basically. I can't believe he did that. He must regret that. <laughs> just, he, if he really thinks about it, he must kind of regret it as much as he justifies it. There's just no transitioning from Mega Drive to Spectrum again. Just must have been, you know, he he justifies it, but I don't believe him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what, what about you though? Where did you go next then? If, if you're so, that into games. So this is when it went really weird because I wanted a console and I think the Mega Drive and the Spect- uh, the SNES were on the horizon. The Mega Drive especially because the SNES seemed to take ages to get to England. It really did, yeah. Yeah, but... Um, and actually, I remember... In a, I remember I used to... Somehow, I used to get a letter th- to my house and it was hand-typed and it was this guy who would go on trips to Hong Kong and Tokyo... And he'd send out this letter saying, if you want me to bring anything back, hand typed, not even, you know, printed, printed via a computer and printer. And it was, it was just like this list of all this like, exotic uh, console stuff, like the Mega CD, even though it wasn't called the Mega CD, but it's kind of like the Sega Super CD is coming soon, get your orders in now and stuff like this. And I remember reading this. I don't know how I got it. I, how it must have been, yeah, that is insane. Like, wait, who, yeah. who is this guy? <laughs> I don't know. I wish I still had... This piece, these you know, these letters, but they were just hand t- uh, typewriter typed price list. You know, a lot of question marks next to the prices of 
of all these exotic computers which he could pick up in Hong Kong and Japan and he would go out in summer and return and get your orders in now and I just I used to look at this hand type thing as like the bible and just dream about you know one day being able to put my order in which I never could so it was all was he just, local like that, that is insane I, I don't know I mind. have no idea I'm trying to think you know now I talk about it was it like a strange dream but it definitely wasn't <laughs> and, and it must have been like in the back of a scene in a magazine there must have been some kind of uh, list you could sign up to and I must have I must have wrote a letter and just got a copy of this strange document which listed all this exotic hardware oh what a tease. it was i know but that was that was the magazines at the time wasn't it and all those magazines were just teasing them but yeah so so my next console was the cheapest console around that was the pc engine oh weird but yeah which was a real strange thing to go for but i remember distinctly the pc engine was 130 pounds because the Mega Drive was coming out and it's closer to 200, 250. And then the SNES obviously was, well, I think you could only get Japanese imported SNES at the time. So I persuaded my parents to uh, get me a PC engine. And was that an import? Because I don't remember ever yeah. seeing like them arranged. Yeah, that was so that was import, Japanese import. Um, obviously, the first one I got, I can't remember if it was a birthday or a Christmas, you know, it didn't work on my TV at all. <laughs> I had no idea, no idea, you know, about all these 60 hertz, 50 hertz, whatever. So ordered the cheapest thing there was, which was a PC engine. Probably came with a Hue card. One of the, it came on, the games came on these strange little Hue card, um, essentially flat like cartridges. Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, and then what do you do when it doesn't work on your TV? Well, you just cry to your mom and say, mom, what's going on? It doesn't work. And then, so she would angrily call up the, call up the uh, the import place in the back of CMEG or Me Machines, which I ordered it from, and complain. And eventually they sent me a new one, which worked on my TV. And, um, yeah, so that was my first console. It's really, I mean, it sounds really hipster now. Like, I was, I did it to try and be cool, but I, but I didn't at all. It was just because it was so cheap. <laughs> and but so what I was, was playing... even on the PC? Like, I remember Bonk was the big game yeah, on the PC so engine. Yeah, Bonk was like the Sonic and Mario equivalent but then you know there was games and they were really good solid arcade conversions of things like Chase HQ and then Mr. Heli and then I remember a platform game called Sun Sun 2 and of course with emulation I've gone back to try all these games again and they're nowhere near as good as I remember but at the time they were just it was still an 8-bit machine but it was just incredible arcade conversions because it was by Namco was it I think yeah 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 so so they had access to these really good um, arcade conversions and it was it was incredible of course i only had one joypad port and i had no one to no one had you know to share games with or anything like that so it was quite restrictive but but it really it, you know the games were just that that first taste of the kind of quality which only the japanese were producing at the time which is really solid solid arcade games and were they was it better than the mega drive i remember always mm. uh, you know you read about it in magazines and it always seemed more kind of exotic and somehow like a little bit better than maybe just because it was you couldn't get one in the uk so therefore it must yeah be no it wasn't it wasn't better it was it was kind of still eight it's still an eight-bit machine so it was kind of a step between the nes and the mega drive and the okay. SNES. so it wasn't better but it was very colorful and it had access to a lot of these um, arcade conversions which were really solid because of their connections 
to the the arcade manufacturer, I guess. So it was it was good, but it was nowhere near as good as the Mega Drive or SNES. Looking back, I think it came it came out in the US as Turbo Graphics. Yeah, and they th- I remember looking at I've got copies of um, DVD of all the classic magazines, and they were it was getting close to a UK release, but I just think it fell apart because everyone was more interested in the Mega Drive than the SNES. But it was great, and um, it's just yeah, a really strange choice to uh, to move on from the BBC. <laughs> yeah, you've really been like playing on the fringes, basically. Yeah, and then and then of course eventually Mega Drive. And also, I remember getting the Mega Drive, and I, my parents—they still had a black and white TV, so I was playing things like Eswat and, you know, the, the Altered Beasts and stuff like that in black and white. And so I was per- always traveling to my friends' houses to play in color. <laughs> so, you know, even even when I finally got the PC Engine and the, the Mega Drive, I was playing on a bloody black and white TV. Oh so, man! I know. Yeah, because that was one of the best. Like, like I, I, just, I still distinctly remember how just unbelievably colorful sonic was like that that was one of the biggest draws and you're playing it on a black and white tv yeah something kind of really sad about that (laughs) tell me about it and uh my and it's only like now my pet i was about to say it's only now my parents got a color tv it's only now my parents have kind of got like a flat screen tv you know these up up till months ago they still had this incredibly bulky like colorful uh color tv um, so, which is probably you know really good now for retro consoles and stuff. So, so yeah, they're always a bit behind the curve. But I was always so I was always traveling around with my uh, my Mega Drive, my PC Engine, just trying to see it, see these games in in how they should be played. I'm sure there would be people that have been thrilled to do it. If if I had a mate that came right and I said, "Do you want to play? I've brought my Mega Drive. Let's play games." That'd be amazing. Yeah, you'd think you'd think so, and they were. I mean. So, but then at that time, my friends, you know, Mark and Christian had moved on from a Commodore 64 to an Amiga. And that was, you know, amazing, obviously. And again, the Amiga, with hindsight, so much better than the Atari ST. It's just, um, you know, so they had that, which was great. And I'm trying to think my, you know, and I would, again, I was just press ganging everyone I can, could to get into games. So my, I got, somehow my sister got a Game Gear at some point, the Sega Game Gear, the handheld. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and uh, of course, after a day of her using it, I literally adopted it and then had a game gear. <laughs> and so, so yeah, it was. And then my cousin, I think he his his dad had a PC, and so it was interesting to see all these early PC games. So, so yeah, so it was all. So I was I did the classic Mega Drive and then to SNES, PC Engine, Mega Drive, SNES kind of route. So, but all along the way, I was just you know trying to absorb everyone else's devices as well. Like the Amiga was pretty special, but I never had one. Really annoying. Yeah, so um, you never would have had like I mean, beyond early dalliances with uh, like Repton and stuff on the BBC, you wouldn't have had access to you know level editors and and you know sort of given the opportunity to kind of tinker and get behind the scenes a bit more with games because consoles were you know totally closed off essentially. Yeah, I think the next time I'd really find myself back in the loop was when I got a PC, but again through the spectrum and typing and listings and i'm trying to think what we did on the mega i mean a lot of the mega stuff i played was with my friends so it was kind of local multiplayer um bmx simulator all those kind of classic one screen local multiplayer games and then sensible soccer all the all the classics really which was just which again um on the on the consoles especially the pc engine having only one controller port going to, going and playing on an amiga where you could just play with your friends was was fantastic. 
And so, so was there any would... inkling at this point that this would be something you'd like to do and you'd like to get into games and make games? Well, I, I don't think I ever thought about making games, but I was always kind of designing stuff. Like I was, I was also big into like Warhammer, you know, and fighting fantasy books and the Warhammer games and like um, all the little statues which you paint and stuff. Not that I was ever good at it. And I used to have all these board games. I used to do like a Blood Bowl board game and uh, I used to pick up Warhammer and White Dwarf, the magazine. But again, not had no one to play with it. So it was mainly just me like, wow, this is fantastic. Wouldn't it be great to play this? And then not actually playing it. <laughs> You're painting such a sad portrait. <laughs> it's quite lonely in Somerset. But um, but yeah, but I was always... And then I had to design my own game. So, you know, I, I, my parents recently moved, actually, and, and they said, oh, this is all your old stuff. And there's all sorts of kind of weird games I designed. Um, like what sort of games? Just like... Um, Kind of, there was a classic uh, uh, game called Talisman board game, which I loved. I think I've still got it actually. And uh, so I'd, I'd kind of designed my own expansion packs to these to uh, to these kind of Warhammer games and create my own cards and events uh, and characters and stuff like that. And I yeah I had a but box. You'd never so play them. Sorts. Uh, yeah, I would. So that so I would. You know, again, it's kind of like when you when you. Um, when you kind of get everyone to play rock band at Christmas yeah, or play yeah. on the Wii and be like, okay, let's play Talisman or let's play, you know, one of these games. I've been waiting all year to play it with someone. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't that bad. But yeah, so I designed all these, I'd, I'd always be designing little things like that. And I remember when I, when I babysit for parents, um, kids and stuff, I'd always be designing like, uh, if you actually thought about it now, it's probably like what you call LARPing now. Yeah, like I would, I would design. I would be like the games master and get you know these kids some babysitting to like go on an adventure, and I'd, I'd role play everyone else. So I was always like, that creating sounds games. That sounds like the best babysitter in the world. Yeah, well, I think it was mainly for my benefit. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were probably like, "What the hell is this guy doing?" But um, but yeah, so I was always doing stuff like that. So I, I don't know if it, you know that hinted at something, but um, at the time it was just kind of uh, just trying to have fun in the yeah, yeah. hills of somerset no only joking it's not that bad but, but yeah that's a good that's a good if you're gonna larp you do it in somerset if you've got you know, you've got a good uh a good countryside and stuff to do it that's classic true. tolkien territory yeah no knights of king arthur and all that yeah wow maybe i should set it up again <laughs> oh there is there is definitely a larping community like definitely yeah, around Somerset, there's bound to be. If you go into the woods, you'll find all sorts. Of yeah. it, I'm sure. Yeah, and then you'll find the larping as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so how did you? How did your relationship with games sort of change as you got older? Did you? Did you ever kind of move away from them? Or were you, were you always into it? Yeah, no, definitely did the. Uh, I mean, it's so interesting listening to all your uh, all your interviewees because they all kind of deviate at some point. And of course, for me, it was uh, the move to. I think I was all, moved to university initially. Just had no interest, lost interest in games. All your money was going towards going out and just surviving at university, rather than hey, I'm going to buy a console or invest in um, invest in a computer. But I think I, I did have a PC, obviously for work. Uh, for yeah, what did university you do at university? Work. Like, what did you? Oh, so I did computer studies. Okay, so you're still um, kind of in the ballpark then. Yeah, so having a PC was, you know, useful. And of course, piracy at that point was, you, you could just get anything. I remember, yeah. um, and I, so I missed out kind of on the PS1 stage of gaming. Um, I was, I mean, when I didn't, I didn't own it, but my friends did. But also, 
the people you meet at university, there was a guy in halls who, who, you know, I was introduced to him through a friend and he just had a wall-to-wall rack of like PlayStation 1 games, all copied, all labelled perfectly. And if you wanted anything, you know, he'd just, yeah, I'll do you a copy of whatever you wanted. Of course, I didn't have a PS1, so I couldn't really take advantage of it. But I didn't really think of it at the time, but it turns out he actually dropped out of uni. But he did create this thing called DVD Decryptor. <laughs> and I remember when I was, uh, you know, copying games and at certain stages in my life, I was using this app, DVD Decryptor. And it turns out that was the guy <laughs> at uni. And he actually got, it stopped, um, he actually got shut down by the DVD companies because it's essentially it's, it's an illegal copying tool. And it uh, changed into this thing called Image Burn which is what the legal version of it without the decrypting bit. But yeah, that was, that was the guy. He was the guy that was giving my friends and me, if I had a PS1 or a PC, all the copied games. And he dropped out of uni and thought that was it. But he actually came up with this DVD decryptor app, which was like the standard for copying games for years. Where was that? That's amazing. So that was at Nottingham, Nottingham Trent. Okay. And uh, yeah, and it's just crazy that he, you know, but he, honestly, his, the level of piracy that this guy it's no no and actually his final year project was dvd decryptor i think <laughs> but then he never he never went in to do his exams but i wonder if that but, that worked out for him i mean i'm assuming it would uh, not in the long term perhaps but you know regardless of the the intent of the software it's probably still a pretty decent bit of software absolutely i think he's done really well out of it i mean he was i think he was getting it was donation only but the if you imagine worldwide audience of people trying to copy games absolutely yeah, he was making a lot of money, which is why it was shut down. But he he was at such a level. He had there was just no. I can understand why he dropped out because just not, there was no point for him to get. Uh, a lot of us needed the kind of the documentation so we could take to our future employers saying, "Look, I've, I can do this." But he didn't need to prove to anyone; he could do it straight away. So yeah, he's doing absolutely fine. And Image Burn is still going to this day, which is kind of the branch, the legal branch off of this DVD decrypt software. That's crazy. But, yeah. But the but it's, at university it was literally all just pirated games, and I had to. When I was when I came down to my final year, I, I remember travelling back to my parents in Somerset and just leaving all my games and all my yeah copy, just leaving every single piece of gaming stuff I had, just because I knew if I had it in in my hands, I just wouldn't be able to finish my degree. But and you still it, had a PC though, so still surely a PC, that's, that's still going to give you that option. Yeah, it, yeah. So that, but internet. I'm trying to think what internet I had back then. I can't remember. It probably wasn't very good, if anything. So, so just getting everything out of my site. Yeah, that that I had to do it essentially, which is quite scary. But yeah, so it was all about PCs and copying, and and then I think also the N64 as well. I um, borrowed a. Uh, friend again press gang people my friend was the contemplating buying an n64 full price with mario as a uh, don't know if zelda launched with it but mario definitely did and of course i was like yeah go for it get it get it with it <laughs> the only inclination thinking that as soon as he's finished with it can i borrow your n64 and i i remember borrowing it and just absolutely caning super mario and um yeah so again it was just trying to get everyone into gaming for kind of illicit benefits myself <laughs> Uh, any opportunity but for me at that time it was all pc like worms was obviously a great local multiplayer game and then championship manager as well it's just uh was well just, that's just... surely a terrible idea if you're trying yeah. to you're leaving all your stuff behind it's like, oh well i'll keep champ manager though 
Well, no, that's that's exactly what I had to leave behind. All these kind of games which should just suck you in. And then, of course, not Morrow. Was it Morrowind? There was a, the game before. Maybe it was Morrowind. The game before Morrowind was also just an absolute time sink. So all these kind of games, um, have to leave all those behind so I could finish my degree, which I finally did. But um, but yeah, the, tempt- the temptation is just dangerous when you have just an endless library of copied games. And was there, was there no like inclination while you were doing the computer science to, to start working on, on games? Was there any part of it that you could kind of you know justify playing loads of games because oh this is part of my degree i'm doing doing game stuff Uh, well this is the other there wasn't really it was strange it was very kind of cold and and now of course nottingham trent they uh, game city yeah absolutely they've a good relationship absolutely fantastic and i've been up to game city a couple of times and it's amazing and um it's all integrated with nottingham trent university in fact they're the main driver behind it i think or something yeah yeah absolutely and I remember chatting, going up there to Game City and chatting to a lot of the helpers who were from students. And, you know, they're all doing things like game design and, you know, video game graphics and uh, all sorts of really interesting stuff. But for me, when it when I was there, it was literally computer science or computer studies, very cold, very um, not exciting at all. No mention of gaming at all. And I'm very jealous that these guys now, um, yeah, that what's available to them is incredible compared to what what we had is a lot more exciting so gaming it wasn't really i think um a couple of my friends were definitely were definitely thinking yeah i'm gonna get into games but i don't know at the time i was just um and and then especially when i left uni it was just i need a job (laughs) rather than i need a gaming job yeah so Um, just like any sort of so i mean computer science is, is a very useful degree you can do all sorts of stuff with that yeah so i came out of uni and then uh, moved to London and essentially got a job at a company called Playjam, which uh, recently known for doing this. Uh, they did a Kickstarter, which was very successful for a thing called Playstick, which was a kind of Android um, plug-in console, micro console. Okay. Um, so but, that was that a video game company then? Well, no. I mean, that was that was recently. I don't know what they're doing now, but when I joined them in 2000, they um, were doing kind of TV uh, TV games. So on on if you had Sky TV. Oh, of course, you mentioned this. Yeah, you you you, you tweeted me about this uh, when I had Dan on the show. Yeah, so he he was obviously involved in it as well. And Playjam would um, they had a slot on the the um, if you press Sky on your remote, you can back in the day you could go through various sections, and one of them was games. And they had a slot on the games. Uh, EPG, that's what I'm talking about, the electronic program guide. You could go to game section and then there would be Playjam and you could go into Playjam and play these kind of very simple simple TV games with the remote control, all awful. But, of course, all, all the boxes at the time had to be plugged in to um, the phone network. It's part of the like, legal requirements if you had Sky TV. So they had this kind of channel back where people could pay essentially microtransactions yeah. to play these games. And for a while it did really, really well. Um, until obviously technology caught up and there was a million other things to do. But these games, I mean, I remember the one which Playjam um, did really well with was a, a darts game, a very simple darts game. And, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people playing this this really simple darts game just because I think more to do with the fact there was nothing else out there. Yeah. And they had this slot. So any, anyone who turned on their skybox and went to games, it's a bit like being on the front of the app store now. If you go there, it's there. So let's try it. Um, but that's like considering you weren't really you know 
focused on getting into games. You, you yeah. clearly did quite well to just immediately get into games. Yeah, I mean, but initially, I think I was brought on to do uh, apps for the ITV Digital. I think it was called On Digital or ITV Digital. So it wasn't even the Sky stuff. The Sky stuff had a bit better technology. I was doing this like weird ITV digital box, which was essentially like making games and teletext. And <laughs> the technology was really bad. But again, yeah. I, I spent many was... hours playing Bamboozle as a, as a kid. I love yeah. teletext games. Yeah, so it's essentially stuff like that. And I remember we did this quiz, this live quiz, which was broadcast along a quiz. I think the quiz show was called 50 to 1. And you could press your red button on your ITV digital box and play along as the questions appeared on the TV and guess. And it was the first first one of its kind to be broadcast anywhere, live. Yeah, the quiz show, which you could actually play along with on your box. And the first time we did it, we went down to Slough, where Virgin was or something, and got ready to, because you literally had to press play, and our questions would appear as the person would be playing along on their box. And the first time we did it, we just we took Channel 5 down, which was quite impressive. So literally, <laughs> how did that happen? I have no idea. It was, you know, the, one of the first projects I worked for. The whole company was sat back at base, waiting for this quiz show to start, and suddenly Channel Five just disappears, and it was our fault. Um, yeah, we, we did get it working eventually, but that's that's but a, was, a rocky couple of hours. So you're like, you've just yeah. completely oh, destroyed yeah. a TV channel. Yeah, completely took down Channel 5 and on digital for everyone watching, expecting to watch that quiz show. We took it down. But eventually we got it working, and there's just all sorts of weird things like that. And they made a lot of money out of it, but eventually the money uh, dried up. And um, like a, I jumped around a bit then, working for various small companies in London. And they, and one thing which was very common was the company would suddenly change, sort of switch to something completely different to get more funding. And I think Playjam did that a couple of times. They suddenly suddenly a dating company had arrived in the office and we had a big meeting. We're, oh, yeah, we're now doing dating. It's like, okay. That's it's like a bar going bankrupt and then just changing the name and opening again. <laughs> yeah. So it's just to get go to the city, you get a lot more investment and um, I move on to something completely different. But I did eventually start making small games for Sky, um, for the Sky platform, which are a little bit more complicated, but still very, very basic. But, um, yeah, the, the, as, uh, as was mentioned, when you make these games... You have to get them done in like four to eight weeks. Yeah, because you can only make a certain amount of money off them. Any longer than that, and you're going to start losing money. So it's basically just a kind of factory pushing out these, pushing out these small games, hoping. Um, but where did you get the, the money? The inspiration, like not the inspiration, but like you know, you've got a computer science degree, so you're probably pretty good with computers and, and coding. Uh, I imagine. So how? But where do you kind of, you know, come up with the idea for making a game? That, that, that's a really bad question but you know what i mean like yeah you, you no, haven't I mean, necessarily been taught game design essentially so you're kind of running on instinct yeah so yeah essentially i remember doing a warrior wear clone i remember doing like a top-down uh tank sort of blasting game um this weird parachuting sheep game the inspiration yeah it was just from i guess just some his long history of playing games and trying to you know weave these games into the technology which you could which could support it really. It was it was a lot more technology led because they was you really didn't. First of all, the boxes weren't that good, so you couldn't really do anything that impressive. But secondly, everyone was using a Sky remote to play these games. Yeah, which which was just awful. Um, but yeah, it was it was really good looking back. But I think at, the, at that time, um, I was playing EverQuest. 
Yeah, so when you finished university, was that like, oh, okay, I can get back into games again now? I'm, yeah, and I think, I've got money, so therefore I can exactly, get whatever I yeah. want. So I was, I remember, yeah, and, you know, broadband was becoming a bit of a thing then. And I remember signing up for this free, it was, I, don't, I can't remember how I got it, but it was like free satellite broadband in southwest London. And I got it free for two years, and it was super fast. And then that's when I, I think I'd started playing EverQuest, which obviously was the predecessor to World of Warcraft or the big one. And it was just, you know, basically my work was essentially just uh, a way of allowing me to continue playing EverQuest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember at work just, you know, browsing there was this website called Alakazams, which would tell you all about the best place to go in EverQuest to level up and, and um, you know, and, and get items and um I got to like level 60 and I was in a guild. I actually met up with my guild once and it was, you know, I lost a girlfriend. You know, I was every, uh, every moment of the day, work or not work, all I was thinking about was EverQuest. How did you lose a girlfriend? Was that a case of it's EverQuest or me? And you're like, well, (laughs) pretty much. Just kind of slowly, you know, you know, slowly just trying to ignore the fact that you've got those other people in your life when you could be playing, you know, in your virtual guild. And I was a bard and it was just, it's, when you you're a bard you, i was a bard so i was a level 60 bard and it, essentially that's kind of like crowd control so you're managing all the enemies so other people can kill them and it became a real skill and the sad the sad thing is when you join a guild is they get you because the only way you could get your epic weapon was through the help of your guild you know you have to kill these dragons and stuff and you'd need like 40 people to go and kill these dragons which is why you joined a guild in the first place and as soon as you know, you'd met up on an evening and 40 people had gone with you and taken down this dragon, you'd won what you needed. You're essentially in their debt for the rest of for the rest of your gaming life. And so whenever <laughs> there was a call to go and kill something else for someone else, you'd immediately feel, feel guilt if you didn't join in. But that's not to say it wasn't amazing. I remember the first time playing EverQuest with a friend from PlayJam, actually. And, um, you know, it was just magical going online and seeing other people and then traveling from zone to zone, not really knowing what was there. Um, it was really, really magical before you realize it was a grind. Yeah. I mean, those, those, especially as someone who, you know, as, as you said, you grew up relatively sort of solitary with your, your game yeah. and then suddenly now you're part of a, a 40 person team just, you know, killing dragons. That's, that's very exciting. And But I do also, you know, also a lot of people on dial up, so everyone had to kind of. You only had two hours before it would kick you off and stuff like that. So there's all these kind of weird technology things you have to manage. But it was, yeah, it was absolutely uh, encompassing and just it was incredible, really looking back. But I, that, you know, I can't play. I didn't play WoW. Uh, I can't. I can't really play anything like that anymore because, um, well, EverQuest taught me that self control and things like that is uh, quite difficult. Well, this is the, like a question I try and ask everyone: is like, what is the game that you had to kind of walk away from? But clearly, it's it's EverQuest. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, I, I yeah, it was it was incredible. But you know, eventually, it's kind of like when you know someone's um, an alcoholic or a drug user. Eventually, people around them they give up until the person looks for help themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like at some point you must re- you, you must have this kind of realization that I have to get help myself. I have to stop myself doing this. Um, but I think also it might have been, you know, WoW was coming out and those games only had a certain, I'm, I'm sure people still are playing EverQuest, but, um, most people move on to the next thing. And I think WoW came out and WoW was obviously a, you know, a lot better game than EverQuest, a lot simpler, uh, to get into probably a lot more addictive as well. So 
I think a lot of people just naturally moved on to the next thing. And that kind of transition also allows a lot of people to drop off from that transition. And so, did, like, did that kind of, as well as uh, the cost of your, your love life and social life, um, <laughs> yeah. did it kind of ruin, not ruin, but, like, did you not really play anything else aside from EverQuest? I think, yeah, when it was when when I was playing EverQuest, it was just purely EverQuest. Um, I was still aware of, every, of everything. I'm trying to think in 2000, what generation of console would that be? PS2? 2000, though. Uh, actually, yeah, it would. That would have been, like, GameCube, uh, PS2. yeah. PS3 was a couple of years later. So I definitely, I definitely had a PS2. I had a I had a GameCube, and then of course the Dreamcast probably before that. And um, yeah, because '99 was the Dreamcast, so it would have all been yeah. that that period. And the Dreamcast again it was just ridiculous with piracy, wasn't it? It's literally. I remember you, first of all you had to have a CD which would allow you to load games, and then somehow the copy games had that built in, so you could literally put anything in your in your dreamcast and play it and you could get bleem i remember you could get bleemcast for the dreamcast when bleem was like the, the very first uh playstation emulator so you could play certain playstation games on the dreamcast and you could buy yeah. i remember you could buy that i remember i bought a copy of it in like i don't know electronics boutique i think it was at the time it was like on shelves maybe a month before it got banned yeah and i could never get it to work anyway so it was a waste it was a waste of money but still yeah, still you could say, well, I play play PS One games anyway if I wanted. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I was, I you know, I I was thinking about it. I played I played all those consoles, so I must have. I'm trying to. I can't remember the exact transition or whether it was one or the other, but I definitely had uh, definitely really enjoyed the Dreamcast, and um, and the PlayStation Two as well. Um, so, well. Yeah. While we're on the subject of like the quickfire questions, I'll do a couple of the other ones. So. Um, if, you, if you're prone to such things, can you remember uh, your worst rage quit? Uh, I mean, it must have been a football game because uh, I really enjoyed Pro Evolution Soccer and the holy grail of football games was obviously playing online against other people. But when Pro Evolution Soccer came out, the, impl- the uh, netcode implementation was just so bad. They tried Every iteration, they tried to make it better and just seemed to make things worse. And there was one point where... Um, Instead of trying to balance it, essentially, one for each half, one player would be the host. Mm-hmm. So if you were the host, everything was fine. It was like absolutely magical, super smooth. But then you knew in the second half, or if you know, if the second <laughs> half, the first half was bad, you knew in the second half you're going to get a good one. That it was just going to turn to absolute shit as soon as the second half came around, and people used that to their advantage. So if they were, if if they were first, if they had the good connection first half, they were the host. You know, they'd play really well, and then they're just, you know, then they knew that in the second half they they could just really start messing with you. And so it was completely unbalanced and unfair. And that, you know, the amount of rage quits I had playing pairs online, and it probably still to this day, is, like broken controllers or like punching walls or just generally angry. Just, I'm turning just, this off. Yeah, no, nothing is bad. No broken controllers. Actually, I was. Yeah, but just at, because it was all ranking as well, there was no kind of player friendly player player you know player player a ranking match or player friendly match. It was all just ranking, and so and also I think if you quit, if people quit, they didn't get punished. It was just really bad implementation. So so you get as soon as people you scored a goal, other people would quit and stuff like that. It was just the most frustrating thing ever when it was this meant to be this holy grail of football games. The, the moment when you know finally you can just play anyone you want and of course it was just devastatingly badly implemented <laughs> so yeah but definitely football games have caused caused moments 
Um, on a on a similar topic, then what uh, what game are you best at? Like if you had to play a, a game with death or something. Uh, I think I mean I, at the I was good at Pez. I was really good at it. And this is before the transition that to FIFA when FIFA became the football game, the best football game. Pez was the best football game for a while. But I think I was good at it because I'd figured I'd figured it out, figured out how to score goals. I knew what to do in what situation rather than yeah. so I cheated the system essentially. And that's why when FIFA became the best football game, that's when I kind of be- began to lose interest because those same tricks which I'd learned on pairs just didn't translate. <laughs> and I think maybe, and football games, they're like kind of tankers in the sea. They take so long to change. Yeah. And so FIFA took you know years before it became the best one. And now I think Pez has taken years. And I think only now, from what it seems like, I, I played Pez demo, the new one. I think they're at the level where it's not kind of one's really much better i think they're just different now mm-hmm. but at times one was always better but it was those transition periods which completely ruined me but until that point i was a really good pez player i think <laughs> okay um what game um has made you laugh yeah this is difficult because is. games don't, they don't generally make me laugh one thing which might a bit, bit of an odd choice but um the witcher oh really uh, well so The Witcher is like the most typical RPG kind of... Like the latest one, The Witcher 3? Or... Yeah, so The Witcher 3. This most stoic kind of RPG, you know, classic um, tropes everywhere through The Witcher and the uh, second or the first two DLCs. But then they just released new, uh, the newest DLC, Blood and Wine. And it's like the game designers knew it was the end and they were just like, fuck it, we can do what we want now. Because there's some missions in that which kind of... Uh, without getting to spoiler territory, just take the piss out of themselves. And it's so unusual to see them do that after kind of this 100-hour game they've created of being completely po-faced. I mean, you, you take some mushrooms and your horse starts speaking to you and starts taking the piss out of why it suddenly appears out of nowhere when you press a button and why it, why it can't jump over small fences and stuff like this. And it just, it did, it made me chuckle, at least. But it was just the fact that it was the game designers thinking, this is it now we can do what we want we can create these missions which uh which take the piss out of ourselves and not you know and there's nothing else coming after this so we might as well do it now you've just sold me on that dlc I it's brilliant wavering, i mean it's, but... it's an incredible game anyway and i loved it but for it to finally you know turn around and obviously it's a bit there was this game sherlock Holmes game and i remember watching a youtube video where you play as sherlock and every time you turn around Holmes is just behind you yeah the cre- creepy watson Creepy Watson, that's it. And your horse is a bit like that because in Witcher you press a button and your creepy horse just appears out of anywhere, out of nowhere. And they were taking the piss out of that in this mission. It was just, <laughs> it was just really light relief. But um, but yeah, no. In terms of and of course local multiplayer games, that's where the real hilarity you know appears. But in terms of in terms of actually sitting at home and laughing, it's quite rare. So when did you decide to kind of uh, go off on your own and, and start a Panic Barn? So. I was so I moved on from Playjam through various companies in London, lots of startups, lots of places shutting down and kind of burning through money and things like that. And then I ended up at Sky TV, which was um, a very completely different. So because it was, you know, there was job security, <laughs> which is always nice, and a very traditional kind of job. And they look after you very well, and you know, you get a pension, and they make it very hard to leave. 
and I was working on interactive technologies and apps there. Uh, but it got to a point where I was kind of, where I think there's points in your life when you look around and you realize that people are just loads better at you, certain things. And you mentioned programming and some of the guys you work with, it's like they, the way with programming, I always look at it as a lot, everyone can program, but for people to come up with their own solutions to problems, programming problems, they're, they're the really clever ones. And so anyone can kind of research it, copy and paste, look up the answer, find solutions we've done before. But the really good guys, they come up with their own solutions. And uh, a lot of the people I work with at Sky were that good. And I was thinking, okay, I can keep doing this, but never achieve the levels they're doing. Or I can do what I want to do and make games, which is what I'm really passionate about. And I found myself thinking, okay, if I don't do this now, I'm going to be stuck at Sky being mediocre, but very comfortable. Or I can actually take a risk, move back to Somerset, where um, obviously the cost of living in London and Somerset are completely different, yeah. and try something I've always wanted to do. And I think it was, uh, I had a I had a daughter as well, so it would be really useful to be close to my parents at that time when the, the daughter was born. And it was just the perfect storm of, okay, well, let's just try it. That's and, pretty uh, bold, though. Like, was, was there a specific thing that triggered that? And you were like, oh, do you know, this is, I have to do it now. I, th- I think it was because I'm quite old and I was like, I really, you know, I think uh, you mentioned when did I know I wanted to make games? I probably did know I always wanted to make games, but it's just very, once you get into that, uh, you've got a job, it pays all right. You're paying the rent, you pay, you know, maybe you're paying the mortgage, whatever. It, that's it really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so to break out of that, um, it took, um, the, well, very luckily the opportunity to move back to Somerset and, um, and essentially in Somerset, the cost of living is so low. It allowed me a bit of time to kind of work on games. My my, my first game was a really simple card game, and uh, do everything myself and try and because that's the only way I could really figure things out is just by trying stuff. So it gave me a bit of time and space to actually figure out how to make a mobile game. Or you know, I never actually thought I'd uh, do a mobile game until obviously it became very easy to, and it just gave me a bit of breathing space to be able to try stuff. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like a perfect storm of. Um, opportunity to be able to just get out of that uh the traditional work until pension was it not terrifying though yeah but (laughs) it was it it was initially yeah it was terrifying (laughs) but again the the, i mean i was just comparing i was thinking hold on i can live in london and then it would be really really terrifying like and not feasible essentially or i can give myself six months in somerset where um, I can live at such a cheap rate that it just gave me a bit of breathing space. Mm-hmm. But of course, most people don't have that opportunity. And I was very lucky in that sense. Most people, they've got to try and do it while, um, you know, while, you know, while continuing their main job or something like that. And so I had this window of opportunity I tried it. And then after that first game, um, that was when I had to, okay, the first game, it was, it was okay, but it's not enough to survive on. Now I've got to choose something which, which hopefully will make me some money and allow me to keep making games. So yeah, it was it was thinking about it. It was pretty terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but did, did you have like did you have the idea for like Tiki Taki Soccer, for instance? Did you have like a bunch of games that you you wanted to make and this was your chance? Yeah, so New Star Soccer came out, which is obviously um, which is an incredible game, and it was the first mobile game which I played, which kind of encapsulated that 
Um, I mean, the, the actual gameplay itself is great, the uh, shooting mechanic and everything, but mm -hmm. it encapsulated what I used to really enjoy in Championship Manager, which was just season after season of iteration and slowly uh, cultivating a team. And I just loved it so much. But what I missed about what I missed from the game was the actual full football simulation, being able to actually play out the games as well as have that kind of slow, slow build of building a team. So that was so it's essentially New Star Soccer, which um, which essentially was the inspiration behind Tiggy Dagger Soccer. And luckily, through the Pro Evolution Soccer League I used to play in, I knew um, Simon, who made New Star Soccer. So, well, just from um, playing online. Yeah. Yeah, playing online in the football league. So I was like, oh, I, you know, do you want to check out this prototype I've created? You know, I'll come see you and just let me know what you think. So is he local? Is he, is he British as well? Yeah, he's British. He's based uh, near Oxford. Okay. And he was like, yeah, of course. Um, I'm, you know, just show me what you've got. So I showed him and he was like, yeah, there's definitely something there. And a lot of that's that kind of uh, feedback, whether it's from Simon or from just going to a conference or something and showing people games that's kind of it's because well actually it's quite it's all come come around because you know sitting in somerset sitting in um, the barn creating something you're very cut off from any kind of uh any kind of feedback so um taking that out and getting some feed some positive feedback kind of allows you to whether it's from simon or conference or whatever with my new games it's kind of like it just makes you and you're on a high after you show it to people and they like it but it's, it's managing that high, making sure um, that what that feedback is actually proving that what you're doing is on the right track, and hopefully everything is right. And you know, you could, I could imagine myself taking the the prototype I took to Simon, and him just being like, "Well, you know, yeah, nothing." But you know, luckily the feedback was good, and that that um, that allowed me to carry on really. And you're literally in a barn. Literally in a barn, panicking. What like what is? <laughs> how, how are you in a barn? Well, it's not like a hay barn or anything. It's, not, it's got a door. It used to be an old. Um, it used to be a farm barn. Now and then, it was an old photography darkroom where I am now. Okay. And so there's there's now some windows in it, and uh, yeah, it's literally just a barn where I where I go from where I live, and it's that separation from workspace to living space is I find quite important, even though it's not far away at all. And I can walk to it, but um, yeah, it's literally a barn. That sounds quite idyllic, a little barn in Somerset making video games. There's nothing else going on. <laughs> so, oh, there's, there's people LARPing in the woods, definitely. Yeah. People throwing fireballs. But, uh, yeah, so so that was it, really. Just um, made the transition. And then Tiggy Takasaka, um, yeah, and just spent a lot of time, actually. I mentioned getting feedback from Simon. Every stage, taking it to like sh conferences and shows and showing it to people was really helpful. Really and, with it, and it's worked out for you like that that's done quite well tiki taka yeah it's done it's done all right and it's allowed me um to keep going and what's what i'm struggling with now is like the balance of course when when you release a game on tiki taka socket it it has to be updated and i think um and it's a real balance now of like working on new stuff or updating the old stuff it's a tricky thing to manage because obviously i never I, I like football games, but I never thought, hey, I want to make football games, you know? I think um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make games. So now I'm working on other stuff, which isn't football, and it's kind of, but do I spend time updating or do I work on the new stuff? It's That's the that's the balance now. Which, uh, and is it just quite, you? Yeah, and then other, there's a guy in uh, 
the guy in Sweden I use as well, which is which I met. He's really good. So and then other the contractors, a guy in Bournemouth did some art, um, and so on. So you just again, I'm meet you meet like I mentioned this guy. You notice people are really good at what they do. That's the people I want to work with, you know. Rather than I didn't want to kind of. Um, I see people and I think, wow, I really want to work with you because you, what you're doing is absolutely incredible rather than I just want to work alongside you not doing as well. So yeah, meet people, find the best people you can and just, uh, and just try and get them for his, get them to work on your stuff. Is who, who's the guy in Bournemouth? Is it Gary? Yeah. Oh, and I know Gary. Yeah. So um, he did Army the, trolls. Did, Army trolls, so, yeah, so he did. Yeah. So it's, you know, and I'm, I met him. Well, I noticed his stuff on Ralmuk on their forum and you know it's what are you doing can you do some art for me yeah <laughs> and suddenly you've got someone like gary who does this incredible pixel art uh creating your sprites and, and uh, it's fantastic oh it's very exciting um so so what what does the the future hold for you so right now i'm i'm doing a i'm really intrigued by these kind of uh have you heard of the publisher ketchup nope they do very simple uh, iPhone games. And I was very, very simple, like one touch games. And I was so like catch uh, up with an, with an A. Uh, catch up, yeah, using app as a kind of okay. Yeah. But um, and so after Tiki Taka Soccer, I'm kind of football burned out at the moment. I'll definitely go back to it to do online multiplayer. But um, I just want to do something very simple. Mm-hmm. So I came up with a few concepts for very super simple games, and I'm developing one of those, which is kind of based on. Um, play your cards right believe it or not good <laughs> game. Game <laughs> yeah. so i'm working on that and then um there's a there's a golf game as well i want to do but we'll see if that goes anywhere um but yeah so just other stuff apart from football uh have a bit of a break from football and is it still mobile is that just the, the most kind of friendly avenue for someone who's like working on their own uh yeah it's such an easy barrier to entry um of course that means a lot of people are doing it, but um, not necessarily mobile. I mean, I just you know, a lot of people said, "Oh, do you not want to do Tiki Taka Soccer on on um, you know on Steam or something?" And I was like, "Well, it doesn't." The whole thing about Tiki Taka Soccer is the touchscreen control. Yeah, and, and so translating that to Steam would suddenly put me in the same uh, bracket as competing with uh, Sensible Soccer in the new kickoff, and then you know, in theory, you know, the uh, the big boys, PES and FIFA. So. You know, I went with Tiki Taka Soccer because there wasn't really a way of controlling a football team on the touchscreen, which was to my well, which I liked really. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I, I would definitely have no problem with going on anything. Really, it's just making sure the game fits with it. And what about like new new hardware? Like, are you excited about the potential for you know things like VR and AR and stuff? I've, I am, I am. You but I mean, I played. No, like I don't know. I don't that. want. I don't want to kind of get don't want to put it down on it it's amazing vr isn't it how much it's um i mean the real test is going to be the ps playstation vr yeah and to see how that does i just uh i just think it's a little bit early i mean i love it i mean i played on it it's incredible but i just can't see how it's going to translate to the kind of games which i want to play which is just like just you know well imagine the witcher <laughs> a, a concept like that playing in vr i just i don't know maybe we're a bit far away from something like that but those are the games i like i like these kind of uh, deep deep experiences and i just don't think vr can provide that yet whether yeah. it ever will i don't know that's what i'm worried about well maybe 
the, the thought of playing The Witcher in VR is is exhausting. Like that's yeah, just the, yeah. the scale of it. I need to walk over there. Yeah, <laughs> no. but yeah, no. VR, I, I do love it, but I just I just don't know. I don't know if if they what they can do with it. And do you find you're playing more or less games now since you've you know been developing? Well, that's the other struggle. When you know the temptation to play games, especially as you're working on PCs. I just got a PS4, um, so I'm kind of I'm catching up on PS4 stuff. Um, and it's great. Consoles are great, aren't they? I, oh, you forget the sometimes. It's just so easy. And the PS4 is so easy. You don't even have to turn it off, and then you just turn it, press a button, and it's back where you left it. Just stuff like that. It's just it's just makes it so easy. And yeah, so I am playing a lot. I'm playing my PS4 a lot more now, and. Uh, I'm playing a lot of a lot of the free stuff. You know, the, they just did a uh, Battlefield free week or something, oh, okay. and then um, and then the new um, the new shooter has just been free this weekend. So I've just been kind of jumping in and playing these games for free, which I never normally would. Um, but yeah, PS4 playing a lot of it. Still loving the PC, but my PC is getting a, getting on a bit now. More this 4K talk is just um, <laughs> it's, it's depressing and tempting, but I don't know. Um, well, Tim, I think we've we've covered a bunch of stuff. There is there anything that uh, that hasn't come up that you wanted to mention? Actually, I just listened to your last one. Yeah, and they mentioned um, the guy that did co-op. Co-op is it? Yeah, Bennett Foddy. Yeah, so he he mentioned he was doing a new game, which um, you play on Mame and play game after game after game. Yeah, that sounded yeah. really interesting. Multi bowl. And have you heard of Alistair Aitchison? He's uh, another I don't indie developer. Think so, no. It's just he, he just tweeted something recently, which was very similar, and I thought it was quite interesting. So he's uh, messing around with emulators and scrambling the Mega Drive RAM while you play games on your emulators. So the example he uses is Sonic, and he figured out that he can kind of scramble the RAM as you're playing. So as you collect a coin, the game gets corrupted, and new images and you know the tile set changes of the background and the sound effects, it all gets corrupted as you play. And he's just hooked it up to multiplayer. So two people playing Sonic, and the more rings you collect, the more the other person's game gets corrupted. Oh, that sounds play. good. And it just and it reminded me of the co-op guy of what he's doing, you know, messing around with emulation and how that stuff can be. Uh, I do, yeah. I genuinely think that could be really exciting. Like the, the we've never really got a strong kind of remix culture in in games. It's always iteration and iteration. Yeah. So I mean, it is kind of remix because it is everything is built on other ideas. But to literally like in the same way that you know, hip hop is a, a a musical genre born out of sampling. Like I think there could be oodles of potential, but it's obviously a, a copyright minefield. Yeah, and it was just it was just such a great idea being able to like mess around with someone else playing Sonic while while you're getting better. It's kind of yeah, it was great. But the co-op stuff reminded me of it. Oh, and also I should mention. Um, my friends, when they had a Commodore 64, Mark and Christian, we created a um, homemade Outrun cabinet. Yeah, yeah that, <laughs> that probably should have come up a bit earlier. What? Yeah. So I just this is this is again this is the kind of press gang I used to do. So we so if someone would someone would sit in the chair and play the Commodore 64 version of Outrun, which was the most worst version of Outrun you could ever imagine, but it didn't matter to us because it was Outrun. Okay. And we'd always play it 
by an upstairs open window so you'd have the wind blowing in your hair <laughs> and then someone would control the chair and like tilt you up and around as you drove it it was brilliant but that yeah, sounds amazing need, need to mention that because i'll get them to listen to that because uh they they mentioned that the and did one of them have to like hilarious. sit next to you and, and play the the girlfriend <laughs> yeah. uh, and then also cmvg i think had the outrun music as a free tape on one of their um their their issues so obviously stick that in the stereo while you play and you have like the proper arcade music rather than the the uh ropey commodore 64 music but yeah that was a classic thing that sounds amazing that does sound like <laughs> like a kind of human controlled uh arcade cabinet there's, yeah. there's a lot of potential yeah, something there, there i think definitely each you have to get two people sort of to ship with the game to, yeah, get, the, to get the full experience yeah you always phone them up <laughs> a bit like uh like uber and they come around <laughs> um well tim where can where can people find your stuff on the internet and your games etc yeah so dicky taka soccer is on ios and android just search for it and then uh, my website is panic bar and on twitter panic barn as well cool are you are you happy with that tim was that good fun yes yeah, great fun and uh really enjoying all these are you going to do video at any point oh i don't know that seems like a I lot of work you're doing a pay- patreon now aren't you definitely yeah but i can just imagine you being like do you know cof- um what's the seinfeld one coffees and comedians and cars yeah yeah yeah. you can do de- devs and drinks or something and go around and do yeah you, you can be the seinfeld of <laughs> With my eighteen dollars <laughs> Patreon yeah. money, no yeah, problem 20... at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I really, I love it. I love all this. Oh, stuff. thanks! It's just really great. 